There's a new book out by a lady called Helen Andrews that is called Boomers, the men and women who promised freedom and delivered disaster. And I haven't read it, but I read a book review of it this week that left me wanting to read it. Because apparently Andrews writes that the baby boomers, you know, those born between 1945 and 1964, have been responsible for the most dramatic sundering, the most dramatic tearing apart of Western civilization since the Protestant Reformation. And if you think about it, that is quite a claim. And the review says that in the book, Andrews takes a critical and humorous look at some famous baby boomers and makes the case that the effect that they have had on the world was ironically totally contrary to their intentions. Steve Jobs of Apple fame wanted to liberate everyone's inner rebel, but instead has left us chained to our gadgets and enslaved to social media. Sonia Sotomayor of the US Supreme Court and Al Sharpton, the civil rights activist, wanted to liberate the oppressed and empower them, but have ended up empowering new oppressors. The economist Jeffrey Sachs wanted to end colonialism, but in doing so has imposed a new economic colonialism. And in response to reading this book, the reviewer, who himself is a baby boomer, writes, I am supremely grateful to Andrews, the author, for confirming that we are bad, bad people. What a mercy that we'll be going soon. Now, whatever you think of that, what caught my eye is that you can be doing something that you think is really good and it actually be causing far more harm than good. And in today's passage, Paul says that that is exactly what was going on in Corinth when they came together as a church. First point then, a body divided. Look at verse 17. When you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. And verse 18. When you come together as a church. And the word that Paul uses for church is the word ecclesia. And the reason Paul and the other New Testament writers use it is that that was the word that the Greek translation of the Old Testament used for the assembly of God's people Israel in the wilderness. Plus, it was the word that the Greeks used for the gatherings of their citizens, their political assemblies. I mean, think of how some of the cantons in Switzerland take their votes in the public square. That is the equivalent of the Greek ecclesia. And that's what the word church means the assembly, the coming together of God's people. Now, you and I can give thanks to God for the technology that helps us stay connected at the moment. 
I mean, even if Steve Jobs had his hand in it. But all of us want this current period to come to an end, don't we? Because church is about the people of God physically coming together. But when the church in Corinth were coming together, it was for worse, not for better. Verse 18 again. When you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. And those divisions were about how the rich were treating the poor, those who have nothing. Verse 22. So these were social, not theological divisions. And yet, if you think about it, all social divisions are ultimately about theology, aren't they? They're all theological, ultimately, because they tell us what we really believe about God and about men and women made in his image. It's why Paul says in verse 19, there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognised. And theologians have debated, is Paul being sarcastic there? That it's the desire of some people in the church to be recognised, to be thought of as the top dogs, that that's what's causing the divisions? Well, maybe, but more likely he is saying that there are times when God takes our controversies and the divisions that come from those and he uses them to work out his purposes in and through them, to bring stuff to light that needs to be addressed, to make it clear what the truth is, to expose people's genuine spiritual character so that change can begin to happen. And when this church in Corinth gathered, it was exposing who was genuine, who was tried and tested, who was the real deal. And if you think about it, difficulties and trials can do that, can't they? They have this power to reveal what we really believe, what we really believe about God and about what we believe about others. And in Corinth, it was revealing what those with more social power or status or wealth really thought about the poor, even the poor in their own church, even the poor who were their Christian brothers and sisters. Verses 20 to 22. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? Or as the message translation puts it, some are left out, others have to be carried out, too drunk to walk. Now what was going on there? Well, there were no church buildings yet, so the church would normally have met in people's houses, and especially in the houses of its richer, wealthier members who had more social status because they had more space. And those kind of Roman houses, those Roman villas, had two rooms where meals would be eaten. 
there was the atrium, where the owners and the guests, slaves or children or clients would eat. And depending on the size, you could fit maybe 30 people in there. And that's likely where the church would meet. But leading off the atrium was the triclinium, the dining room. And that's where the owner and his honoured guests would recline on couches around a table. And you could fit maybe up to 10 people in there. And what seems to have been happening in Corinth when the church gathered and shared the Lord's Supper is that they would do that as part of a meal. But the owner of the house and the wealthier members would go in and recline in the triclinium, leaving everyone else, the poor and their slaves who had also become Christians, out in the atrium. Because that's just what you did culturally. And the food would have gone to the triclinium first, and those in the atrium weren't even getting a look-in. Those higher up the food chain, they were having a feast, while the poor and the hungry, they got nothing. Think about when you fly. This is a church segregated into business and economy class, and those in business get the full gold-plated service while those in cattle class, they don't even get a sandwich. And Paul is saying, you think that's church? You think that's the Lord's Supper that you're celebrating? Since when has the Lord's Supper been about the host deciding who is more welcomed or more socially honored than others? Who are you kidding? That's not church, that's not the Lord's Supper. You see, these well-to-do Christians in Corinth, who were shaped by their culture, they didn't see their fellow Christians who were poor as their equals, did they? Because something else, uh, their culture, their social class, how identity was tied up with wealth, those things were trumping what God says about your Christian brothers and sisters about people made in his image. And in their disregard for them, Paul says they are shaming them. So, you can be doing something religious, even something overtly Christian. You can be going through the ritual of it and God can look at it and say, no, that's not real prayer. That's not real worship. That's not the Lord's Supper that you're taking, because this is all about you. Now, you are very unlikely ever to be in a church where people are carried out drunk after communion. But it is very possible to be in a church where people are divided along social or racial or political or intellectual lines. Because culture, or what you most value, or what your identity is based on, is more determinative for you and how you see other people than Christ. 
And we can see people as like us or not like us, as in or out, as one of us or one of them, as worthy of my time or not. So, if we are not to fall into the trap that these guys had fallen into, we need something that is going to change the way that we see and treat people who are unlike us. Second point, a cross-shaped culture. Now, if you were unlucky enough to live in Australia and get bitten by a snake, what would they do? They would rush you to hospital and give you a shot of anti-venom, wouldn't they? Well, sin has this ability to make us self-absorbed and we don't notice those out in the atrium. So we need an anti-venom, we need an antidote to turn us outward. And in verses 23 to 26, Paul reminds us of the events of Jesus' Last Supper. And he is not doing this just to pass on a bit of historical teaching or so that they or we can use the right words in the worship service. He is doing it to apply Jesus' death to their social situation. He is taking the gospel and saying, guys, this is what should be shaping the way you think of and see and treat each other, especially those who are unlike you. Verses 23 to 24. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. On the night when he was betrayed. So even when Jesus knew that his life was under imminent threat, when one of his closest friends was going to turn on him, Jesus was not looking out for himself. He wasn't self-absorbed. Instead, at that Last Supper, he enacts the ultimate act of selfless giving. This bread is like the breaking of my body soon to happen on the cross, and it is for you. And Paul is saying, let how Jesus treated others, even us, and how you are treating others, even your brothers and sisters, let that contrast sink in. And then Paul says, verse 25, in the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Now remember how in the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, God gave Israel sacrifices to atone for their sins. And remember how the animal, that animal sacrifice, became a substitute for the person, for the sinner. The animal's life, represented by its blood, was given in exchange for the person's life. And Jesus is saying, all of those sacrifices were pointing to me. 
I am the sacrifice to end all sacrifices. And your sinfulness, your selfishness, your self-absorption, all of those demand a price. But I will pay it for you, my life for your life. It's the new covenant that God spoke of through the prophet Jeremiah. Jeremiah 31. Behold, I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. They shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. You see, how do we tend to think that we can win someone's approval? By our efforts, by our character, by earning it, by proving ourselves as worthy of their approval, by achieving recognition in our field, whatever that field might be. And we can think that that is how we can win God's approval. That he will say of us, I approve of you, you're okay, I will bless your life if we do this, this or this, by what we do or who we are, by, by us having a great social conscience or giving to charity or caring for the poor or holding the right political views. But when you think like that, it inevitably leaves you looking down on those who are unlike you, who haven't achieved what you've achieved. It leaves you thinking that you are better than those out in the atrium or better than those living it up in the triclinium. Instead, Jesus says, it comes through me. I'm the new covenant. It's through me that you can find forgiveness. You see, it is only by knowing that salvation and justification, God accepting you and welcoming you and approving of you, it's only by knowing that all of that is by grace, by what Jesus has done for you, and not by what you do or by who you are, that you will ever be humbled and see that neither you nor anyone else is worthy of that grace. But neither is anyone beyond that grace. You see, if these guys fail to see their brothers and sisters out in the atrium, Jesus saw us. And at the cross, he was looking out for the interests of those utterly unlike him your interests, my interests, because all of us are out in the atrium. We're all poor and hungry and enslaved. And it's as if Jesus leaves the ultimate triclinium. He leaves all of the privileges and the comfort of heaven. And he says, I see you. I see your hunger, I see your poverty, I see your chains, I see you and I will come out to you and I will serve you and feed you and free you and I do it by giving myself. And that is the culture that should shape you, Paul says. Third point, 
remembering and proclaiming. Now, how many serves or returns do you think that Roger Federer has practiced over his career? Or think of one of my heroes, Johnny Wilkinson, England's greatest ever fly half. How was it that Wilkinson could kick like a metronome? How did their skills become instinctive to them, even reflexive? Or think of a professional musician. How can they run off their scales without even thinking? Answer, practice. When everyone else was in the bar or in bed, they were out practicing until it became a part of them. And every year, every Jewish family would practice the feast of Passover so that every Jewish child would grow up having it ingrained into them that God has delivered us from slavery, that they would remember that. And it was at that Passover meal that Jesus broke the bread and said, verse 24, do this in remembrance of me. And verse 25, do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Because he's saying, I am the true and the ultimate Passover. I'm the one who saves and delivers you from slavery. So do this and practice this to remind yourselves every time that this is what I have done for you until it is ingrained in you. Because he's not just giving us a mental reminder, is he? He doesn't just say every time you get together mentally picture the cross, does he? He makes it physical. Take bread, break it, eat it, take a cup, hold it, drink it. He's making it physical. Why? Because it is by repeated practice that something becomes a part of you, that something becomes second nature to you. Because it's then that what Jesus has done for us and how he has treated us will instinctively shape how we see and treat others because it begins to make the gospel a part of us. Because every time you eat and drink, you're reminding yourself, you're preaching to yourself, you're proclaiming to yourself, Christ died for me and he died for them. He died for me and he died for them. Week after week, he died for me and he died for them. You know, in C.S. Lewis's book, The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe, Edmund, one of the Pevensey children, gets into Narnia and he meets the White Witch, the Queen, and she gives him some of her food, Turkish delight. The problem is, is that when you eat the Queen's food, you're hooked. You become one of hers. It changes the way you see Narnia. You see it as her domain. And that's what happens to Edmund, even to the point of being willing to betray his brother 
and his sisters. And when he secretly leaves Mr. and Mrs. Beaver's dinner table to do just that, to go and betray them, and they realise he's gone, Mr. Beaver says, I knew it. He had the look of one who has been with the witch and eaten her food. You can always tell them if you've lived long in Narnia. Something about their eyes. You know, there's something about our culture, about the world, that is like eating the witch's food. And Paul is saying, don't. Instead, come to the Lord's table. Come and eat the king's food. Let his food and his drink be what shapes the way that you see the world. Because the Lord's Supper doesn't just look back to what Jesus has done, it looks forward to what he is going to do. Verse 26, for as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes, until the king returns, until he calls his people, rich and poor, great and small, to join him around the greatest of all banqueting tables, the table where there will be no social divisions, where every wrong will be made right. So Paul says, when you come together around the Lord's table, examine yourself. Last point, look in and look up. Look at verse 27. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Now, all sin has consequences, but some sins have consequences in this life. And to behave as they have been behaving certainly had consequences. Verse 29. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. Fail to discern the body. Fail to see in the Lord's Supper the representation of Christ sacrificing himself. Fail to see your brothers and sisters as one body with you and that Christ's body was broken so that our social divisions might be healed, that his body was torn apart so that we might be brought together. Treat it as a trivial thing. And you're putting yourself in danger, Paul says. The very thing that symbolizes the cross that saves you will become a thing that brings judgment down upon you. Verse 30. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. Now, I don't know, maybe you are sat there thinking, man, that's a bit harsh, isn't it? That people start falling sick, even dying, because of this? Well, suffering can have a strange effect on us, can't it? Suffering, you know, things not going well in your life, it just has this power to wake us up, to give us a jolt, to get us to reconsider things in our lives, to see our lives in a new light. And we can begin to see where things are a bit out of whack. 
things that we have failed to see. Plus, suffering makes us realise our vulnerability. You know, when I was a boy, my brother and I, my mother used to discipline us with the wooden spoon. And just the sound of the wooden spoon rattling in the utensil pot, pot as she would pull it out, just that sound was enough to reduce us to silence, to stop our fighting. Or think of getting a speeding fine. I mean, there is nothing like having to pay up to make you watch your speed is there, at least for a few weeks. But that's the point of discipline, isn't it? Not that you receive it, but that you want to avoid it. And Paul is saying that just like any other loving father, our heavenly father disciplines us. And he has been disciplining these guys in Corinth so that they can avoid the far worse, final, ultimate judgment. Verse 32. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So, as you come to the Lord's table, Paul says, examine yourself. Look inside. Verse 28. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. Now, Paul is not setting up a standard of perfection, is he? He's not putting up a wall so high that you can't climb over it. He is saying, hey, ask yourself, as you come to the Lord's table, ask yourself, are your attitudes to what you're about to do and are your attitudes towards others consistent with what the Lord's Supper is all about? Look in, but then look up. Look to Christ dying for you. Look at his wounds, look at his hands and his feet, now glorified in heaven. Look at him dying for you. Because when Paul says, so eat of the bread and drink of the cup, that is an invitation to come, isn't it? To come and find fresh grace. Because the whole point of the Lord's Supper is not that you have to have it all together, but that you don't. But Jesus does. So look in, but then look up. And as you come, and as the gospel becomes second nature to you, it will begin to transform the way you see those who are unlike you. Those out in the atrium, or even those over there in the triclinium. Verse 33. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. And that verb, wait for, is the same word that Paul uses in Romans 15, 7, which was in our responsive reading earlier. Welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you. In other words, when you gather, welcome one another, prefer one another, look out for one another. You may be very different from one another socially, but Christ Jesus has made you one.